Uh, Well, we're going to go to the Lord now together in prayer. Uh, Yesterday was the funeral service for Harvey All. Now, if you've come to the church in the last few years or in the last few months, like me, uh, you may not have met Harvey, but Harvey was a member of Ashley River Baptist Church for 68 years, uh, passed away at the age of 99. So uh, God blessed him with uh, a long and sweet life. His uh, wife died a couple of years ago. Was, I always enjoy at funerals like that, just hearing about the lives of people who have experienced. Uh, he, he lived through 17 presidents, 17 different presidents, and was born a few years after women's suffrage, after you all got the right to vote. Isn't that crazy? And uh, so we'll just imagine the number of changes a man like that experienced. So uh, thankful for him and for his uh, faithfulness here and uh, in this congregation. Well, let's go to God together now in prayer. Father, we do thank you that you are our strength and our shield. And so we come to you today and we confess that when we are in trouble, you are a safe hiding place. I think of those in our congregation who are experiencing particular uh, pain or difficulty right now. And God, I pray that you would uh, lift their heads, be their comfort for the family of Harvey All, for John and Pat Fletcher, for Ron and Jennifer Shearer, for Sally and Troy Evett. God, I pray for these brothers and sisters that you would encourage them. Give them strength in their weakness, and God, I pray that you will heal them. And we pray for uh, our congregation now as we uh, pray about and select men and women to serve the body here as deacons, God, that you will lead us to those who are full of the spirit and of wisdom. Thank you for Charleston Baptist Church. Uh, God, for us, there's a, a, a story that in some ways is difficult to tell, and yet we are thankful for the way that you have uh, led two congregation, or one congregation, God, and to become two. And I pray that they would preach the gospel clearly, that they would make disciples, and I pray for Pastor Kevin, God, that you will encourage him in his ministry there. We bring before you this morning Speaker Ryan. We know that there is no authority except those that are from God and that they have been instituted by you. And so, God, I pray that you would help him lead wisely as you have placed him there, and that as he finishes out his term as Speaker, God, give him strength. We ask for those who are serving you among the Arab traders of southern Arabia. God, give them courage and clarity in speaking the gospel in this area that is nearly a 100% Muslim. And we pray for our church, a member of our church family, for Bill Idlett today. God, I pray that you will bless him, give him strength, joy in his walk with you. And for us as a congregation, help us walk with humility and gentleness, with patience that we would learn to bear with each other in love and that we would be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And now as we come to your word, God, we ask that you would lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Make us people who are devoted to your word. Help us be secure and rooted in our identity in Christ. And Father, we thank you for the victory of Jesus over sin so we can have victory over sin as well. And we pray all of this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew 4, we'll be looking at the idea of fighting temptation this morning. Fighting temptation. As we consider this passage together, Matthew 4, 1 through 11, 
we'll be considering this idea that Jesus' victory over sin gives us hope in our fight against sin. Jesus' victory over sin gives us hope in our fight against sin. Matthew chapter 4, I'll read the first 11 verses. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread, to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Well, if you know the Lord's Prayer we referenced last week begins, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. If you track a little further through that prayer, Jesus tells his disciples to also pray this, Lead us not into what? Temptation but deliver us from evil. So it's a little bit perplexing that Jesus tells us to pray, don't lead us into temptation. And yet when we come to this passage here, Jesus himself is led into temptation by whom? By the Spirit. The Spirit leads him to be tempted. So this passage is a little bit difficult for us. Because we find Jesus in the place of temptation. And the first thing that we see is that he's placed here by God. He's led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So we have the physical place of temptation, the wilderness. But more than this, broadly speaking, we have a picture of the conditions that often lead to temptation. And it's that we are in a place of vulnerability. Namely, Jesus is physically vulnerable and he's also spiritually vulnerable. So he's in a place where he's weakened by hunger And God sends him to this place. What do we make of the fact that God places Jesus in a vulnerable position? At some level, this doesn't sound like the act of a loving father, does it? It doesn't sound like something a father should do for his child. But if you read through Scripture, there are some patterns in the Word of God that help us maybe make sense of this a little bit. For instance, if you go right to the middle of the Old Testament, you find the book of Job. And Job is really the story of a man whose life is very hard. And God places him in this life and essentially, as we're given a little window into what happens there, gives Satan permission to test Job. And in the end, God will show himself faithful and Job's life is an incredible testimony, but Job is placed in a very difficult position. And if we go kind of toward the end of our Bible, we find the book of James. And in James chapter 1, James says... God himself cannot be tempted with evil, neither will he tempt any person. So we have this, God places someone, scripture recorded, in a place where they will be tempted, and yet God himself never tempts anyone. 
And so there's a very fine line here that we must attempt to walk. So what happens is God will never tempt us to sin, but he will place us in situations where we're faced with our inner desire to sin. So how can a good God do this? How can we work through this in a way where a good God can place his children in a way that feels, in a place that feels dangerous? Well, this is a little bit difficult when we think about Job losing his family or Job losing all that he has, isn't it? But let's dial this back a little bit and see if there's a way that we can make sense of this together. How can a good God place his children in a position where they could be tempted in a place that feels dangerous? Is it possible that something good could also be a source of temptation? Well, imagine with me this morning uh, that you have a job, a career, a a vocation of some sort. Maybe you have that now, maybe you you have had that, or maybe you look forward to having that. But imagine that at some level, the job that you do is personally fulfilling. You enjoy doing it, and yet it's also personally taxing. And so you go to work every day, and and whether you enjoy it or not, but that job is a gift from God to provide for the needs of your family. So we live in a culture where we'd say, if you have employment, that's a gift from God. And if you happen to have employment that you enjoy doing, that's really a gift from God. You know, there are cultures where there's no work to be done. And so when you live in a culture where you actually have the opportunity to work, to labor, to provide for people that you love, and if God blesses you to be generous with others— That's a gift from God, but is it also possible that that could be a source of temptation? Well, if if you're in this kind of role and you you expend your energy working, laboring all day, you come home and what faces you home? More opportunities for ministry there. You walk in the door and if you have young kids, you have young kids that you need your energy. If your kids are a little bit older, maybe you have little kids that don't want your energy, or older kids that don't want your energy. Or you walk in the door and there's a husband or wife, or you walk into loneliness, you walk in the door, you're exhausted. Well, that point of Physical, mental, emotional exhaustion is a point of vulnerability. And so, ironically, the very thing that's a gift, employment, job, career, that's a gift to you, is also an opportunity for temptation because you walk in the door and the frustrations of that exhaustion can can begin to set in. Is the job a good gift? Yes. Is the weariness that you experience as a result of that good gift a place of temptation? Yes. So there's this good gift, and yet it also in a fallen, broken world is a source of temptation, potentially. But beyond this, all of God's children will face experiences or situations in which we will be tempted just because we live in a fallen, broken world. So there are good gifts of God that because we are broken creatures can be difficult, but there are also things that we encounter that are just hard because the world is a broken place. I mean, no one gets through life without experiencing the effects of a sin-filled world. I mean, imagine this. Hypothetically, you grew up in a family with lots of kids. And in this, there was a lot of sibling rivalry. And as you grew older, all of your siblings hated you because your dad doted on you. And as they grew to hate you and resent you, they hated you so much that they sold you to be a slave. Not only do you become a slave, you become betrayed by your master's wife who accuses you falsely of something that you never did and then you're cast in prison for years, rotting in an Egyptian prison. Well, if you're tracking with me, you know this isn't just hypothetical. It happened in the book of Genesis to Joseph. Joseph, betrayed by his family, has an opportunity to take revenge on the very ones who betrayed him. They stand before him and he speaks to them. And what words does he speak? 
You meant it for evil, but God meant it for what? Good. Now, that's difficult for us to reconcile. I mean, none of us, I think, would look at the opportunity to be sold into slavery as a good thing, let alone to be sold by our own family as a slave. And yet Joseph looks at these circumstances and says, God meant it for good. And so we have this conundrum. We have what we can see, which is evil, bad. And yet somehow in this, this big, sovereign, good God is working good in ways that we can't see. And we can't quite connect the dots. Well, Joseph there, by faith, connects them for us. There are circumstances that are evil, difficult circumstances, and yet in these things, what Paul says in Romans 8 is that God is working all things together for good to those who love God. And so there are things that we can see, this is difficult, and things that we can't see, how could God be working in this? And so there's this disconnect between, between what we can see and what God is doing. Jesus is led by God to this difficult place. There are a lot of things that don't make sense to you when you're a small child, but they begin to make sense as you grow older, like why you have to go to bed at a certain time, or why you have to eat certain things, or you can't eat other things. And in the same way, we as God's children can see little bits and pieces, and yet God, infinitely great, omniscient, omnipresent, all-powerful, all-knowing, is at work in ways that we can't fully understand. We're like kids growing in the knowledge of God. I think Matthew kind of cracks a joke here for us. He says, so Jesus hasn't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights, and then what are the next words? And he was hungry. Yeah, Matthew, do you think? He hasn't eaten for 40 days. Certainly he's had something to drink because otherwise he would have died, but he hasn't eaten for 40 days. And it's in this moment of extreme vulnerability that Satan comes. Jesus is weak, and he's also alone. Satan is no idiot. He knows our weak points and loves to attack us when and where we're vulnerable. Often our worst struggles come in a moment of solitude. When we're alone, we think no one can see, no one knows, and we can hide what we do. Jesus is alone. He's in the wilderness. And yet what we see here, Jesus in the wilderness, 40 days, 40 nights, like the people of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years, and yet Jesus again will show he is the new, the true, and better Israel. In all the ways that Israel failed, Jesus will succeed. The failures of Israel point to the success of Jesus who never fails. So we move from the place of temptation to Satan's strategy for temptation. What is Satan's strategy in tempting Jesus? Well, he comes when he's weak. Luke chapter 4 tells us the same story. And at the end of Luke 4, we see that the devil ends every temptation and he departed from him until another time of opportunity. In other words, Satan is looking for particular opportunities to tempt. He hits us right when and where we are weak. He hits us where we're weak. Well, we know Jesus is in a vulnerable position, but if you haven't eaten for 40 days, what is the particular temptation that you would feel? Related to food, right? You'd want to eat. And so Satan tempts him at this moment with hunger. I mean, don't give me 40 days. Sometimes give me 45 minutes or only a few hours. You know, if I eat lunch and I get home at the end, we have a term we invent for this, hangry. 
right? You walk in the door and you're so hungry that you're on the, por- uh, on the, on the, on the, bo- on the verge of irritability. Well, you walk in, you're hangry because you just want to eat. And for 40 days, Jesus has not eaten. So Satan commands Jesus to turn stones into bread. I mean, this is sort of like the equivalent of walking out of the bakery and holding a donut under his, under his nose. And he asks him to do this. So he hits us where we're weak, and he makes us think that we deserve better than we're currently experiencing. In verse 5, Satan takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple. In verse 8, he takes him to the top of a very high mountain. This is no accident that he places him here. 1 John 2 tells us that there are particular ways that we experience temptation. The desire of our flesh, the desire of our eyes, and the pride of life. Satan takes Jesus high. If we begin to believe that we deserve better than we're getting from God, we are halfway to falling. If we begin believing that God isn't good, that God isn't giving us what we deserve, then the tendency to believe that we deserve better, combined with a place of spiritual and emotional, mental, physical weakness, is a toxic combination. And if there's ever been a culture that's tempted to believe that it deserves better, it's ours, isn't it? I mean, we even have a, a word that we use, an entitlement mentality. But I want us to pause and not think for a minute about the entitlement out there, but think about the entitlement that lives in here. Think about a husband that lives with a wife and is tempted to believe that he deserves better, that he deserves more than she can give him. Or about a wife who looks at her husband and thinks he's not meeting her needs, he's not loving and serving her like she really needs, like she really deserves. Or kids, and this is hypothetical because I know we have no kids in this congregation that would be like this, but kids that look at their parents who have given them everything and think, mom and dad, you do nothing for me. I mean, mom and dad, you're idiots. My friends, they've got wisdom for me. And they look at mom and dad and they're discontent with what mom and dad can do or have done for them. We're going to work tomorrow and we're surrounded by a culture, co-workers, a boss, a place of work. And this place isn't, it's not meeting you where you're at. It's not doing for you what you need done for you. And your boss, I mean, let's just be honest, is an idiot. It's not hypothetical, it's true. Well, in these moments, what happens? We tempt, we're tempted to believe that we deserve better, we're emotionally and spiritually weak, and we're prone to fall. And in these moments, what happens often is that Satan will attack our identity as God's children. What comes just before the temptation? Well, if you look back, it's what we looked at in Matthew chapter 3 last week. It's the baptism, right? And for 400 years, God has been silent, and God speaks in this moment. And what are the words we hear from the Father's mouth? This is my beloved Son. We come to chapter 4, and what are the first words out of Satan's mouth in the first two temptations? If you are the Son of God. Satan attacks Jesus right at the point of his identity, right at the point where God has just declared something to be true, and Satan attacks him there. If you're really the son of God, what are you doing out here suffering, starving in the wilderness? Same thing happens to us. 
you stinking liar. How can you say that, mislead that person, or give this false impression and be a child of God? You coward. How can you fear what the people around you think and be my child? I mean, it goes on and on. How can you be a child of God and think like that? How can you be a child of God and say that? How can you be a child of God and do that? Again and again, these patterns of thoughts attack us. And they are so against the flow of the gospel that they can completely rob us of our joy in Christ. Well, if this is Satan's strategy, how does Jesus fight temptation? What is his plan well, Satan hits Jesus at a point where he's vulnerable, but there's another sense in which he hits Jesus where he's strong. So Jesus is physically, emotionally weakened, but Jesus is armed for this battle. He knows the word. The primary tool he uses in fighting temptation is the word itself. First words out of Satan's mouth, if you are the son of God. First words out of Jesus' mouth, it is written. He runs to the word itself. He doesn't begin arguing with Satan. He runs to the word of God, draws the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and begins combat. And the first scripture he quotes is about the nourishing power of the word itself. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In each, in all three responses to Satan, Jesus quotes from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. I mean, physically we know we need food to survive, and spiritually, brothers and sisters, we cannot survive without the food of the word of God. But Satan's tricky. So he tempts Jesus. Jesus Jesus responds with, it is written. God has said. Well, what does Satan do in the second temptation? He comes back, and he quotes scripture back at Jesus. He quotes from Psalm 91 in verse 6. Cast yourself down, and as not God said, he will command his angels to bear you up. So Satan now is using God's own words to tempt Jesus. And this is why it's important that Jesus knows the scripture, knows what God said, because he knows that Satan is twisting God's purposes in the word. And so he responds with scripture, you shall not put, your Lord, put the Lord your God to the test. In brothers and sisters, if we would be followers of Jesus, we must be men and women of the word. It is food for our soul. It is the sword of the spirit. And we live in a day where the, where the devil, like a roaring lion, is looking around, prowling, seeking those whom he can eat, those he can consume, those he can devour. And we live in a world where those, some people pose as representing the words of God, and yet they will twist God's word and use them in ways that God never intended for them to be used. I mean, God didn't intend. He said, in this life, you will have troubles and tribulations. Your best life is future, not now. If this is the best life gets, I'm not signing up for this. But if there's a world to come, a kingdom that can never end, where goodness, righteousness, and grace will reign forever, sign me up for that kingdom. Sign me up for that. Seek out specific passages that relate to areas of temptation that you speak, that you experience. Fear, lust, anger, words. God's word addresses these. Dig down deep into the word. 
Soak your soul in the word so that we're like sponges when you squeeze us. The word oozes out. Not our words, but the words of God. I mean, never in history have people had more access to the word of God than our culture does. And yet never have we struggled so much with distractions from the word itself. Listen to the word. Read the word. Memorize the word. Chew on the word. Jesus armed himself with the word. He also recognized and submitted to God's authority. He highlights the sovereign and goodness of God in the word. The father led Jesus to be tested, and yet verse 7 tells us we don't have the right to test God. And verse 10 teaches that God is the only one worth worshiping and serving. See, God has a right to every area of our lives. When we become God's children, it means that all that we are and all that we have becomes God. We belong to God. The way Paul says is that you are not your own. You are bought with a price. You are God's. God is the creator of all things and thus has the right to rule creation. And we as God's redeemed people are twice God's because he redeems us, buys us with the blood of Christ. Jesus also stays on mission. So Jesus is modeling how to fight temptation. And so that's at one level what we can see. It's okay how we fight temptation, but there's also something bigger and grander going on here. It's tempting just to see this as, okay, how do we deal with temptation? And that is true and important and taught here. But also, Jesus is winning a big, grand, final victory over sin. So what we sang about earlier, that my sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. It's about moments like this when Jesus is tempted to sin and yet does not. Hebrews 4 tells us that he was tempted in every point, just as we are yet without sin. Jesus' victory over sin guarantees our ultimate and final victory over sin. And yet Jesus is here to succeed in a different, to succeed in a different way. Is there a part of you that comes to this passage and struggles with this? What's so sinful about turning stones into bread? There's a part of me that looks at this and says, that, that, that doesn't quite connect. I mean, it kind of makes sense if you haven't eaten for 40 days, and I don't know, you're the creator of all things, and you need some bread to, to make bread. I mean, there are other times where we see Jesus multiply bread to feed 5,000 people. Why can't he do it here? But this is really about a fundamental misunderstanding between Satan and Jesus about what, Satan, what Jesus is here to do. See, Jesus doesn't come in this moment to rule as a king on this day. There there will be a coming day when Jesus will rule as king, but here he's coming as a servant. His mission is to die for all, as a sacrifice for sinners. He has the right to rule all things, but what he has done in coming to earth is he has set aside that right for the sake of offering himself for sinful people. Satan attacks Jesus' identity as God's son. He says, if you are the son of God. And what we don't sense in this moment, but what is really going on is that Satan is attacking Jesus' redemptive mission because if he can stop this mission, he can halt the redemptive purposes of God. But this is not the last time these worlds are thrown at Jesus. If you read all the way through to the end of Matthew, come to Matthew 27. In Matthew 27, Jesus now, the Savior, is hanging on a cross. And the people there hurl these same words at him. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. 
And what happens in this moment as Jesus hangs there, if Jesus doesn't die, if Jesus doesn't rise again, what if in this moment he neglects his mission and comes down? Then, brothers and sisters, you and I are not sitting here as the redeemed people of God. We're sitting here without hope because we have no Savior. And yet Jesus, in fulfilling his mission on the cross and fulfilling his mission in his moment, offered himself as a sacrifice in our place. So if you are here this morning and you haven't yet trusted Jesus as your only hope, if you haven't turned from sin, would you turn from your sin and would you trust him to save you? Jesus' victory encourages us in our fight against sin. One of the ways that we battle temptation is with the word of God, but another is by leaning into our identity as God's children, remembering that our mission is to make disciples of God's people, or of all people. So if our devotion to Christ gets choked by sin, then we're in no position to love and serve other people. We're in no position to share the gospel with those who don't know. How can we reach our community with the gospel if we don't remember who we are? Satan attacked Jesus' identity, and he attacks our identity as God's children. Well, what is the gospel? Well, there are different ways that we can frame the gospel, but one thing the gospel is, is God taking people who are unclean, sinful people and making them clean through the goodness and the cleanness of Jesus. He takes people who are unworthy and makes them worthy by faith through Christ. Jesus was tempted and yet never sinned so that God looks at us and credits us with the sinfulness of Je- the sinlessness of Jesus in our place. You see, ultimately the point is that we're not God's children because we never fear. We become God's children because Jesus never sinfully feared. Ultimately, we're not God's children because we never have sinful thoughts. We're God's children because Jesus himself never yielded to a sinful thought. We're not God's children because we never speak an untrue or unkind word. We're God's children by faith because Jesus never spoke an untrue or unkind word. You see, it's never, in the end, our relationship with God is never about can we be enough, can we perform enough. It is only saying we never can and by faith believing that Jesus can and has in our place that he fulfilled all righteousness. Your identity as God's son or daughter rests not on your very shakable faithfulness, but on the unshakable, unbreakable faithfulness of Jesus Christ in your place. It rests ultimately on Jesus. But the difficulty with this is, okay, we know this at one, at one level, that for us who know God through Jesus, that, there, that we, we have this faith in Christ, and yet the flow of our life often becomes the opposite. Where knowing that we're justified by grace through faith in Jesus alone, we sometimes begin to then kind of self-justify or try to re-justify ourselves by, by our actions to prove that we are God's children. And yet the way this works is we don't flee sin to prove that we're God's children. We flee sin because we are God's children. And there is a complete difference in the way this works. And the difference is in the motive. In both cases, we're fleeing sin, but in one case, we're sort of trying to self-justify it. In the other case, we're doing it because we have been justified by God. Let me try to illustrate it this way. 
Uh, right now, and for some of you, this is where you live. For some of you, this is a distant memory. And for others of you, this has never been a memory because it you know, just hasn't been the case. But I'll try to describe it for you. When I get home, it's uh, when, when I, my face shows up at the door or they hear the garage door go up, there's a pitter-patter of feet. And then, Dad! Like this. There's this, there's this, there's this moment. And often what happens, especially with my two-year-old, is there's this immediate, you're kind of like a prisoner. <laughs> right around the legs, grabbed and, you know, and hugged. And it's, it's, just, I mean, it's, it's like the best moment of every day, getting home. And if no one else in the world is happy to see you, your kids are happy to see you. If you've made everyone else upset, at least in this moment, your kids are happy to see you. And so there's this sense of joy, love, and freedom. And my kids are still at the age where they still love doing this. I know there's going to come a day when it's like, oh, oh, yep, hey, Dad. And like, there, you know, there's not going to be this kind of joy and exuberance, but I'm still at the stage where there's, there's, there's some of this around our house. Well, imagine that uh, as, the, as our kids grow older, two, three, four, five, that, that they do this every day. There's this mom or dad get home, mom, dad, and there's, you know, there's this run and this hug, and there's this kind of joyful exuberance in that moment. But imagine that one day this, this thought enters uh, one of our kids' minds. If I don't keep running to see dad, if I don't keep hugging dad, then... Dad won't love me. And so now I, I run and I see Dad because I'm afraid that Dad will no longer love me. If I, if I don't show up, then, then Dad's love will begin to fade for me. And so what at one moment for a large part of life has been this kind of joyful, exuberant experience, running, loving, freedom, joy, grace, acceptance, becomes a burden. Because now if I don't run and hug dad, dad won't love me. Now if I don't show up or I don't scream loud enough, and so now it becomes kind of a rat race to try to hug dad the hardest, to show up first, to cry out the loudest, oh, dad, 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 dad's here. And suddenly what was a joy and just a, a relational experience becomes a weight hanging around our neck. Because in this moment, suddenly, this experience has turned in. Rather than because I've experienced this loving relationship, now I'm trying to earn that same love. I'm trying to earn that love through my hugs. I'm trying to earn that love through dad, dad, dad. I'm trying to earn that love through showing up. And the thing that was a gift of joy and just a fun experience now is a burden. I must show up. If I don't hug dad, dad won't love me. If I don't show my love in this way, dad won't show love toward me. And so the very thing that I began to enjoy, I begin to loathe and hate. And the same thing can happen to us in our relationship with God. God loves us. God showers his grace and his favor on us. And because of this, we just gladly, emotionally, and personally respond, God, you're amazing. God, we love you. God, we're so glad you're here. God, how could you love a sinner like me? And there's this love and this joy and this peace in this relationship. But something happens. There's this train of thought that enters our mind. Well, if I don't respond that way, how could God love me? If I don't act like God's kid perfectly, God won't love me. And so we begin suddenly the very thing that is a gift to us, the love and favor of God becomes a burden that we cannot carry. And it's in this moment that we must remember, God loves us ultimately not because we are perfect. We are not but because his son, Jesus Christ, is the perfect son of God and has stood in our place and taken all our sin, not in part, but the whole, nailed to the cross and killed it. And so brothers and sisters, don't pick up the burden of earning and trying to 
justify for yourself the fact that God would love you because God doesn't love you because you're so cute. God loves us for the sake of his son, Jesus. And if we're not careful, we can do the same things. We can go to church to earn the love of God. We can sing praise to earn the love of God. We can memorize scripture to earn the love of God. Just like a child trying to earn the love of his or her parents. And it will rob us of the joy of our relationship with God through Christ. The actions are the same, but the motive makes all the difference. We worship God because we exist in this loving relationship with God. We long to hear from our Father because he's spoken to us in his word, and so we joyfully embrace the word of God. We do the same things, but the motive for doing them makes all the difference and shows if we understand how the gospel actually works, which is God loving us first and us responding in love to him. It doesn't work like we earn God's love. God loves us graciously, and then we exist in this relationship with God. Actions, same. Motive makes all the difference. Well, let's take a minute now and respond to God's word. We'll respond in repentance and faith and ask God, help us understand what it means for a good father to place his children in difficult situations and trust God that when we can't make sense of it, we know that he's working good, even if we don't see today how he's working good. I'll give you a few moments to talk to God personally, and then I'll close us in prayer in just a moment. God, we thank you for the love you have shown us and that you have especially displayed through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for our sin. God, I pray for those here who may not know you by faith, that you would open their eyes, that they would see their need of you. And for those of us who are your children, God, help us exist in a way that shows that we understand and appreciate that you have loved us because of who you are not primarily because of who we are, and you love us for the sake of your son. So God, we thank you for him that his sacrifice is sufficient for all our sin, and that you'll save anyone who comes to you. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to have a chance now to respond to God's word. Uh, specifically, if there are ways that we could encourage you or pray with you or pray for you, we would love to do that. I'll be down here at the front. If God is leading you to uh, follow him through perhaps committed membership in this congregation or through baptism or if there's any other way that we could uh, speak with you, we'd love to do that. Would you stand please to your feet and we'll sing as we respond to the word.